everybody, it's a bonus free edition of the Dave and Jeff show tonight. And it's one that we have looked forward to doing for a very, very long time. Uh, Palais, I appreciate, is running the equipment for us tonight uh, so we can bring our next guest in. And I'm, I'll tell you how this story developed. I believe it was around 2014. 2014, Dave and I are doing mornings at Extra. And when you're doing morning radio, you have a connection with the people that reach out either via phone or email. And at that point, we had started to get involved with social media. They had asked us to do a lot via Twitter and Facebook, other other social media outlets. And I remember one morning, I got a message. And the message read, hey, that story you just told, you took it in a direction I wasn't expecting. That was cool. Good job. And I went to look who sent it to me, and it was Matt Coyle. And now Matt's name to me at that time wasn't familiar and so I went and looked at Matt's bio like you always do. You're curious as to who's listening to the show. And it said, mystery author. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I love mysteries. I love them. And uh, I wrote Matt a message back. And I said, hey, if I can fool a mystery writer, I must be doing something okay. Matt, very nice, said, hey, would you like me to bring you a copy of my book? The first book in the Rick Cahill series is called Yesterday's Echo. And I was thrilled. I said, yes, immediately, please do. Matt was nice enough to bring a copy down to Granite Ridge at Extra. And anybody who also knows me knows that I don't do a lot of things very quickly. Things move kind of slow. So a couple of weeks went by and Matt reached out and said, hey, how are you liking the book? I said, God damn, it's fantastic. He said, great, would you like me to bring book number two? I said, you know what, I goddamn love it. And I hit send and, I, and he said, great, I'll see you tomorrow. And I turned to Dave, I said, I haven't read a fucking page of this book, you know that? Oh, what the hell? And Dave goes, well, what are you gonna do? He's gonna be here tomorrow. So Jack and Kate at that point are about six years old. So I go home that night and anybody who's a parent knows, man, you got a bath and, and uh get them fed and try to get them to bed. And then we're trying to write the show for the next day. And you're writing questions and doing all these kind of things. And next thing I know, it's about 1030 at night and way past the time you want to crash out. I said, Matt Coyle's coming in tomorrow. I better pick up yesterday's echo. And I picked it up. And from the first line in the book, I absolutely loved it. And when Matt came in the next day, I said to him, one of my all-time favorite quotes comes from Bob Arum, the boxing promoter, who said at one point, yesterday I was lying, today I'm telling the truth. And I said, Matt, I'm living that. Well, we're now 10 books in to the Rick Cahill series. Tuesday night, Matt and I will be at Mysterious Galaxy. It's right down by the sports arena in that same little strip mall as the Rubio's. But he has been a great supporter of this show. He started out to be a great friend and and I'm not lying when I tell you, easily one of my favorite authors. Matt, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, are we going to talk about me? Yeah, we're going to talk um, about Rick Cahill. We're going to talk thought, about the books. I thought you wanted me to give my analysis on Otani and Soto. We don't, we don't even need it because there's okay. a whole bunch of that. Tell people. <laughs> now, I'm going to say this. As a fan of the Cahill series, you and I disagree on one thing. And you will often tell people that they can start at any point in the series. I respectfully disagree as somebody who's read all 10. To me, I would start with yesterday's Echo because I think the character development of Rick Cahill from 1 until 10 is fascinating. But before we even get into that, the idea of writing, Dave and I are storytellers. We just do it verbally. You do it printed paper. There's so many people out there that think, man, I can write the next great novel. And they want it and they try it. And I'll give you an example of a, of a guy uh, that I just ran into the other day who's trying and won't succeed. But for you, when did the dream all come together? And when did you first put the piece of paper, uh, right? Maybe not literally, but you get my point. When did you put the paper in the, in the typewriter and say, I'm going to start telling Rick Cahill's story. Yeah, it was so long ago that it almost was paper and a typewriter. Um, Legit, how long ago? 
20 plus years ago. No, 20 plus years ago when I started writing. I was probably 13, 14 when my dad gave me The Simple Art of Murder by Raymond Chandler, which was a bunch of his short stories and his kind of thesis on writing mysteries. And that was a book that was, you know, probably written in 52 or something. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was, I'd always read the genre. I'd read mystery all my life. I read Agatha Christie, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as a kid, like, I don't know, eight to 10, somewhere in there. And I love the idea of, um, you know, you're that age. It's like black and white, um, puzzle pieces, love those stories. And then when I read Chandler, I went, wait a second, there's some gray here. And plus I was about 14, 15 where, you know, you got an attitude and you know, sure. like gray and good guy doesn't always win. That kind of appeals to you. And it was a whole different um, tact on it. So I, at that age, I, I thought, well, this is what I want to do with my life. I was a kid and unfortunately I didn't really get serious about it for 30 years. So I'd say when I was, you know, my mid teens, somewhere in there, I thought, well, this is what I want to do. And I was too lazy to do anything about it. I, it took me about a, three decades to realize you got um, you got a right to become a writer. But honestly, I don't. I didn't have any stories to tell. I haven't lived a particularly exciting life. Um, wasn't a cop. Wasn't a lawyer. Wasn't a, a doctor. Some of the things you read about with a lot of mysteries or thrillers, you know, they may start there. So I didn't have really enough life experience anyway to tell much of a story but when you get to be a certain age now i started i did start too late let's put that down but when you get to be a certain age um you know you've developed some uh some life scars and you have loved and had love lost and when you get to be a, well i mean we all know you can lose family members and you know what that's the kind of um emotion that if if you're you know, that's the kind of emotion that you don't want to relive, but that you can put into, you can put that emotion into a situation in your book that you haven't lived through this particular situation, but you've lived life enough to be able to put feelings into it and hopefully on the page. And um, I don't really think I answered your initial question, but um, yeah, I was probably a late, late teenager, early teen, mid teenager when I decided this is what I want to do, but I wasn't ready to do it. I mean, I was a dumbass kid. Um, but when I, I, I got a degree in English from mm-hmm. UC Santa Barbara, which generally is, you know, you're either going to be a teacher, a lawyer, or you're going to go wash dishes in a restaurant, which is <laughs> what I did with your, with your degree. And, uh, and, but even then I was writing a little bit on the weekends, you know, um, some really bad stuff that hopefully is, you know, been burned up somewhere by now, but, um, it was always there, but I didn't, I thought you had to be inspired to write and inspiration is good for about three pages. Yeah. Because radio to me is a lot like mysteries in the sense that it's not so much the story. It's how you tell the story. Can you engage them? Can you keep them with you? Right. And you talk about Otani and those kind of things. When I worked at Del Mar, I worked at Del Mar at the racetrack in high school and they sold tip sheets and every other guy on my row was seventies. I'm 18. One of the guys who was one of my customers who I became really good friends with, uh, his name was William Murray and William Murray wrote for the New Yorker, but William Murray also wrote a series of mysteries that take place at the racetrack that are great. One of them is called Tip on a Dead Crab that takes place at Del Mar. But my personal favorite is King of the Nightcap, which takes place in Tijuana. And the thing, I was just so fascinated by him, like I am, you and I talk about this all the time, is the ability to hook people. It's the ability to bring people along for the ride. And it's the ability to keep people interested. When you write and when you started writing the series, how long did it take you to develop a sense of knowing like, I'm okay, the guys that were with me on page 10 are still with me on page 120? Probably 10 years. I mean, it took me 10 years to get published, I would say. Um, So how do you fight the frustration and keep moving? Well, I was working for... um, fourth golf company that had gone out of business in 10 years I'd worked for I'd work, or either that or it been bought by somebody else and everybody was let go and I saw the handwriting on the wall this company was going to go down and I said well this is it I was 40 early 40s and yeah. I said you can't pretend this is something you're gonna 
you're going to continue to do. I mean, you can, that you can talk about doing. You either have to do it now, I had a little money saved up, I saw the handwriting on the wall, and you either have to do it now or um, get a career. And so at that point, um, when the, sure enough, within a couple months, it went out of business, and I was writing every day on my, um, my used IBM ThinkPad with the floppy disk drive. I told you it was very close to it. Uh, yeah. a typewriter when I started. Um, but when I did that every day, I did it, I did it five days a week. Now I write seven days a week. Didn't have a job. That was so, that was for about six months. I wrote the first draft of the book, first book. And it was one of the best six months of my life. Cause I realized I was finally doing what I was meant to do. And I didn't know how the business worked at that point. In fact, um, a guy I'd worked with in the golf business called me right after I finished the draft. It was amazing. The first draft. And he said, hey, um, I, I'm working now with a sports licensing company. You want to come over and work for us? It'd be in phone sales, you know, something you've done in, in golf. And I go, well, you know, Eric, I just, I just wrote the book because he knew I was writing a book. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, you know, I'm going to get an agent. Uh, she'll sell it. I'll buy the house in La Jolla. I'll never have to have a day job again. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, here we go. But I said, well, you know, I'll come and help you out for a little bit. And I worked there for 16 years. Yeah. But the thing was... Writing every day, spending that six months, I knew this is what I was meant to do. Good or bad, whatever, however, whatever level I'd reach, I had to do it. So being able to do that for that six months, it told me, yes, it's going to be a circuitous path, but you, you're going to do this. Whether you know, you're going to write after work, you're going to write before work. From sometimes I used to write before work, really early in the mornings. Now, I, later, I did it after. But I could not stop. I could not um, quit on the dream then when I realized, yeah, I can write good. Or, you know, I wasn't, wasn't writing very well, but I was writing every day. So at that point, those six months were definitely put me on the direction where I had to continue. Let's go back to 2014 because I said it started that night and, and anybody who works early in the morning, you know what that fight is like when you're looking at the alarm clock and you know you don't have the ability at a certain point, eight hours is gone yeah, and then seven yeah. hours is gone. So well. But when you're enjoying something, you're like, you're fighting the inner dialogue that says, I can go four more pages <laughs> while I'm going to lose four more minutes. What hooked me immediately and what I've always said to people about this particular series, A, as a San Diego guy, I love the fact that the majority of the books take place here. So landmarks, you're going to know. But... I still think people that live in Chicago or Detroit or Toronto, wherever they may be, while they may not know Delmar Heights Road or uh, Mount Soledad, it doesn't change the fact they're going to enjoy the books. Just like I enjoy Michael Conley books with or Robert Crace, parts of L.A. I don't know. But what hooked me immediately was the first line you wrote in the first book. Tell people what the line one of yesterday's echo is. The first time I saw her, she made me remember and she made me forget. And that came to me, it, it took me, I, I was afforded because I wasn't under contract. Nobody wanted my book. Nobody knew who I was. Yeah. Many still don't. But um, I, could, I was revising, revising, revising. I was sending out, getting rejected, and coming back and revising the book. So whatever, but this is before I started sending out. Somewhere in one of those early um, iterations of revision, that sentence came to me. And I was struggling with this character, Rick Cahill. I was writing in first person, um, I wanted him to be an ex-cop. I wanted him to be something in his background that was clawing at him, that was kind of a dark cloud over him. But I wasn't writing him as dark as I wanted to, but I didn't really know how to get there. That line came to me, came subconsciously, came from the ether, what have you. And I realized, whoa, this guy, he really has had something dark in his background. I wasn't even sure exactly what it was at that point, but I realized I have to write darker now. And once I started writing dark, darker, once that line came to me, and I believe in the subconscious. I believe, uh, I rely on my subconscious a lot. Um, and, and when I'm writing a draft, early first draft, something pops into my head, I don't know what it means, I'll put it down. Because I work on the story when I don't know I'm working on the story, so it has meaning. Sometimes you pull them up. Sometimes you, um, you know, they, they're gone in, in, in a uh, revision. But... That line told me, it got me a better sense of my character and got, told me um, that I had so much more to learn about him 
that I was not only writing a book, I was going to be writing a series. You knew right then? Yeah, I did. Which I, is pretty amazing because there's no guarantee from a publisher oh, yeah, that yeah. you're going to be in book seven, I eight. I was going to buy them, but I was going to write a series. Yeah. yeah, because to me, think about for any of you out there that are listening and how many times you've done it over the years. It doesn't matter if you went to B. Dalton, Crown Books, Barnes & Noble, on your Kindle how many different times a book has caught your eye? Maybe it's because of the author. Maybe it's because of the artwork on the cover. And you pick it up and maybe you read the blurb on the inside cover. You read the back, right? And then you actually pick it up and you read page one. And how many have you read on page one where you say, yes, this has me. I'll take it. I'll make the financial commitment to buy it. And how many do you go, I'm going to put it down? For me, Matt, the, it's got to be 90-10. Oh, sure. I'm at Book Soup the other night. Go to Book Soup in LA. I yeah. saw a fascinating woman named Lori Kay. Friday night was the 43rd anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon. On the afternoon of December 8th, 1980, Lori Kay is working for RKO Radio and gets the, the opportunity to spend three hours with John Lennon and Yoko in their apartment at the Dakota. Oh, wow. She does a three-hour radio interview, goes back to her hotel, thrilled by what she has just experienced, and has made plans to go to dinner with John and Yoko. In two weeks, they're going to meet up in San Francisco. And she does what we all do, has Monday Night Football on, and realizes the guy she was just with got murdered. Said she gets in a cab, drives to Roosevelt Hospital, and can see in the door the woman, Yoko Ono, who she just spent the oh, afternoon yeah. with, in tears, devastated. She goes, I couldn't believe it. I've never been the same. So I'm sitting here, and I'm you know, chatting with her and fascinating. And then you see, I go, well, let me look at the calendar. What's coming up? There's a guy coming up that Palais would know. He's a guy that played uh, two different characters on General Hospital. He played a, you know, it's, it's the good guy and the, the guy who looks just like him. And, <laughs> and, and he's coming there in a couple of weeks because now he's probably a nice enough guy. But he's releasing his first novel. And you look at the back of the novel and it's about a guy who's looking for a kid and he can only rely on two people, a private eye and a cop that's on the wrong side of, of following the rules. And you go, you know what I love about this? There's not one fucking cliche in that. Every part of it's a cliche. When you're writing, how do you fight that battle? How do you fight the battle that says this is going to continue what my current audience likes what's going to hopefully broaden my audience but is also not going to be cliche where the reader new or old is going to look at it and go matt come on because i've told you i think you do it as well as anybody i read well thanks um it's hard be cliche there's cliche for a reason because um everybody does it and I think um, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, um, you know, everybody has a story to tell, but there's only one story they have to tell. And I, just, I agree with that in some ways. And so in many ways, Rick is fighting the same battle in every book, but there's a little bit of um, nuance. So I think what's important, you certainly don't want to, you know, you don't want to write with cliches. Right. Yeah, but what you're writing, and they call it, you know, more, literary terms tropes and and it's hard to get away from them. i got a hard-boiled private eye um we should tell people my apologies because i'm under the assumption that everybody and i know a lot of you have the one thing that makes me really really happy is that you may not listen to me on anything else i say here and nobody would blame you but i do like the fact that a lot of people from this show have found the books like and more importantly what i love matt is that they're enjoying it but the one thing we haven't done and and this is on me is we haven't kind of told people who Rick Cahill, our, our lead character from Yesterday's Echo through Odyssey's End, what's the 25-second bio for Rick Cahill so people know who we're talking about? Yeah, he's a former cop. Uh, from He was from San Diego, but he was a cop in Santa Barbara. He went to, he went to college there. His wife was, he was probably a cop for two years when his wife was murdered. Um, he was arrested for the crime, uh, never tried, released, but never exonerated. 
and thought for many years to be the guy who got away with killing his, his wife. And there was a dark cloud that followed him. His father before him was, had been a cop in San Diego and um, had retired early um, under a, a dark cloud, a, a rumored dark cloud that he was kind of hooked up with the mob, a bagman for the mob. And Rick, the son of his father, because of the murder of his wife, he wasn't tried, but he was, you know, he had to leave the force after that because they thought he was guilty. So he's had this dark cloud that's been following him all these years. And whether he killed his wife or not, he does feel responsible for her death. So when he becomes eventually, after yesterday's echo, which we mentioned earlier, he's not a cop. He's working in a restaurant where he worked in uh, as a high school kid from, with, for his best friend, who was the only guy to give him a job after. He couldn't be a cop anymore. Nobody would hire him. And he meets a woman and he helps her out and things ensue. But um, he realizes when he's helping her that he, not only does he want to kind of go back to his law uh, law and order roots and and not carrying a badge, but trying to help people that need help. In fact, as a PI, he's helping people that can't necessarily always get help from the police. But he's also trying to redeem himself for that guilt he feels for his wife's death. So every case he takes, they become personal. The ones I write about, of course. Mm. They become personal, and he becomes too emotionally involved. And he's trying to do the right thing, but sometimes he cuts corners. In fact, um, he lives by the motto handed down to him by his father, or the, cre- the credo, creed. Sometimes you have to do what's right, even when the law says it's wrong. So that's the, this, this need for the truth, and because he never found it for his wife, and to do the right thing and not let not let injustice stand and this this need to find the truth that's what drives him and that's what gets him into trouble and sometimes hurts the people he's trying to help he's a complicated guy he is and that's why i think it's important for anybody they're great reads you're going to enjoy them all but start with yesterday's echo because yesterday's echo is where the introduction is made i i get it from matt's perspective that Whichever one of the books you want to read is great, but I would use the analogy Breaking Bad. And I would say to truly understand Walter White, you have to go back to episode one of Walter White to watch the transformation of who he becomes, good, bad, and different. I think the same thing with Cahill. One of the cool things that I think a lot of us enjoy with the books is what I talked about. And that's the fact that San Diego for... I'm just at least eight, maybe nine of the books ride shotgun. And a lot of us that live here understand that San Diego has a Napoleon complex. We have a Napoleon complex. We never feel like we're good enough. We never feel like anybody loves us, right? In a lot of different ways. And that's why a lot of books maybe take place in Chicago or LA, LA. New York. This, this genre is in LA a lot. Right. But San Diego is so fun for this and it feels like it's the perfect backdrop was the plan always to use san diego or did you think it would be san diego and then rick may expand out and check different areas because the different things that we see the different things that we can visualize as he drives around by the way i'll say rick cahill lives about a minute and a half walk from my current place. And I have, and I've driven the street trying to figure out what you use, which I get a huge kick out of, but, but San Diego as a co-pilot, yes, there's plenty of characters that drop in and out. San Diego is a co-pilot for you as a guy who grew up here. How much fun was that? Well, a lot of fun, but first I want to address the idea of reading a book out of order. Yeah. There's some business involved there, Jeff. No, I get that. I understand <laughs> that. He's trying to sell their most recent book. However, I will say, yes, I think all things being equal, it's best to start at the at the beginning. Right. But I'm always happy when a um, reviewer says, you can read as a standalone. I get it. Yeah, but there's a huge amount of carryover for sure for Rick. And, and when I first started writing him all those years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. It took me 10 years to get published, as I said. Um, I wanted everything to matter for him. Every mistake he made, um, there'd be an f- emotional scar and every physical, all the physical abuse he take would take his toll and that become, that's very apparent in this book. Um, so yes, there's a lot of carryover. Um, but I, but I mean, we've all picking up, picked up books, book seven of somebody's series and liked it, then we go back to the right. beginning. So anyway, it's okay for you out there to buy 
um, Odyssey's end and start. Come do it Sunday one. night by wrong cool. light too, which is great as it talks about Absolutely. talk radio. All right. Um, so, so San Diego. Yeah. I, I, I feel it's, there's a lot of great mystery writers in San Diego, by the way, there's some that people don't know, don't know they live in San Diego necessarily. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, um, I think it's an underserved backdrop. To, I agree. Yeah, because there's, uh, a lot, like I said, a lot of really good writers, but they don't necessarily write about San Diego. They write about other places. Yeah. And I like to be able to write about where I live so I can get out of my car any time of day and drive around and get us, even though I've lived here for many years, to get a sense of place. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you have friends that come to town, you know, that can maybe come to town every year. They go, man, we're going to go to blah, blah, blah. And you think... I've never been there. Yeah. I've lived here all my life. I've never been there. The last so, time we walked around Liberty Station, or not even Liberty Station, Seaport Village. Seaport Village. Yeah. Right. I used to have accounts down there when I was in the <laughs> sports, sports licensing business. Um, mm. Anyway, so I wanted San Diego, because I think that San Diego is interesting, geography-wise or um, topography-wise, if I could say that word. Um, and of course you've got tremendous wealth and you also have a bit of an underclass. So you've got that tension. It's kind of a mini Los Angeles in many ways. Yeah. You've got, it's, it's, the, it's part of the golden state and people come here cause they're looking for that, that not brass ring, that gold ring. And you've got that strive against the, the people that have it and the people that don't have, don't have it and aren't going to get it. I think that's great tension. Um, but also it's a beautiful town and there's, and there's a lot of, I always think of when I think of San Diego, and the part I'm trying to write about, even though I write about La Jolla quite often, yeah. I think of the beginning of um, Blue Velvet. Oh, yeah. Where you've got the beautiful, lovely day, I think it is. <coughs> Might be night, too. Excuse me. And then underneath, you've got these teeming beetles and, and the perfectly mown lawn. You've got these beetles underneath there teeming. Right. And I think of that as the darkness. Sorry. <coughs> so, yes, I thought about staying in San Diego. And it's funny. My agent said, well, you know, you write something different, maybe you should write out of San Diego. I go, no way, I'm not going to write out of San Diego. Although, ironically, I think I'm going to write about Temecula. <laughs> but, um, just for happenstance. But I think it's an underserved area. And I think people love writing about, reading about places they've heard about or haven't been. It's, it's particularly, say, La Jolla, where um, in my first draft, I did not, I call, I fictionalized it because I was going to have a police department and La Jolla doesn't have a police department. I thought, well... You know, I, I have to fictionalize it. Sorry. <coughs> um, but no, you open every, for every book you open up in novel says none of this is real. In the first yeah. page. But my, but my brother-in-law said, hey, I called it, it was an homage to Chandler, Raymond Chandler, something like, I called it La Esmeralda or something like that. And he said, you know, I'm, I, when people, when your family realize you've finally written something, you know, that nobody should see, but you make them read it anyway, they think, yeah. oh, that's really good. Pat you on the head. But he said, you know, I like the book, but I don't understand why you didn't call it La Jolla La Jolla because it has cachet. Yeah. People from all over the world. A lot of people have vacation homes in La Jolla that live all over the world. And so it does have some cachet. So when I made that change, have it a real place, I think it really changed things for me. And the fact that there can be something seedy in La Jolla yeah, yeah. is really fun. Hey, some manager for, restaurant, I can tell you, there's some seediness. Yeah, for those of us that grew up, because it's easy to pick different areas, right? The easy thing is Tijuana or or anywhere else where you go, oh yeah, that's where it happens. But the idea that there's this undercurrent of questionable activities in La Jolla makes it really fun for those of us who grew up here because you wonder, well, how much is true fiction and how much of it's fiction-based sound fact that, that makes it really, really good. One thing Dave and I have done over the years is we've had so many people that have been nice enough to spend time with us and it authors, musicians, athletes, of course. And a thing that's always fun is to know uh, for NFL players, we used to say, what was your NFL moment? Mm -hmm. And, and I remember Philip Rivers talked about looking across the line and I can't even remember the player, but somebody Ray Lewis. Yeah. Ray Lewis or somebody was like, you know, fuck you. I'm coming. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, that was pretty wild for you. You can have guys like me, guys from the audience that acknowledge the book. Was there for you a particular moment hmm. that you looked at and you said, you know what, man, this is, this is when it started. This is what the payoff is. Somebody that read it, somebody that you looked up to, that gave you, looked you in the eye and said, you know what, Matt, that's really good. What was your NFL moment as an author? 
Well, I got two, but I, th- I think one, um, there's one where I just felt like somebody you admired so much uh, was nice to you. But there's one where I would say where someone, because you get blurbs, you get, you know, people, you, you ask writers you admire and that are significantly higher up the food chain than you are to blurb your book, which is like something you may see on the cover that one, you know, this is the best book ever written. Uh, and they're lying when they say that. Um, <laughs> but so I, I think when um, T. Jefferson Parker, the great T. Jefferson Parker, who's a great guy, um, blurred my second book, which was um, Night Tremors, I had a sense that he actually liked the book, that mm-hmm. he really liked it. That it was He strikes honest, me as a guy that probably actually yeah. read it all the way through. Yes. I think he gave me an honest um, blurb, and that was pretty cool. But I will say... <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> a moment before that, where just I felt like this is somebody I've admired so long, and he kind of did something very cool. Um, Odyssey's End was up; it actually won the Anthony Award for best first no- best first mystery. Um, yesterday's Echo. Yesterday's Echo. Yeah, sorry. Um, which was a it's a fairly fairly prestigious award. It's not the Edgar by any means. Edgar's like the Edgar's like the Oscar, where um, Anthony is further down the line for sure. Um, but it's pretty cool. Well, it's cool for sure. First book, very cool. And yeah. um, Robert Crace was up for best novel at the conference. That these are uh, awards that are given away at this conference. It was in Long Beach. He wasn't there, but um, so he was, you know, there. For, I mean, his he was nominated for this award, and all, all the things are given out the same, you know, in the same few minutes. And um, I think I had had I. I, of course, all the book signings he'd come to in San Diego, I'd always go to, and we b- developed a conversation. He knew I was a writer, and, and probably talked to him a little bit in between. And uh, I ended up winning, winning the award. When I did, he emailed me that night. He emailed me that night and uh, and said, congratulations. I was so freaking stoked. That was as cool to me as winning the award. So, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't as if he'd read the book, although he did end up blurring my next book. Yeah. Um, it was just this... Um, being acknowledged from somebody you really respected and who's a hell of a nice guy. Um, so that was that's a moment I, I definitely, for me, is like, wow, very cool. That, I, I think Dave would agree. For us, growing up in this town, getting the opportunity to do our show on KFMB yeah. as our first show was a little, little nerve-wracking because having grown up here, I, and you already have anxiety and you're already neurotic but you look at a radio station that you're given the opportunity to be a part of the kfmb all my life yeah and we i dave i don't know as much because living in nashville and la and coming here but having like i worked at a sporting goods store starting when i was 15 years old a high five in encinitas it was part of no it's been gone for 40 years but but the guy who i worked for Every day, it was Clark and Cavett into Mark Larson with Ted into Padre Baseball with Jerry and Dave Campbell. On weekends, they'd be the best of Mac and Joe, Cliff Albert, all of these different people that I had literally listened to for 14 years. And now we're in there and you're getting a chance to work there. And I was convinced. 100%, not so much Dave, but I was going to crash that thing into the ground. 100% crash it, and they were going to be playing Spanish polka within two years. It was all a dream. And we were doing the show, and our program director, Dave Sniff, uh, who we would- you guys mention him before? he, He, we would tease him nonstop, but he came in, and he was great, and- incredibly good to us and he came in and he said hey don't don't think you're anything special but i was playing golf with rickards and dave rickards told him you know your whole station sucks except for those two guys at night and i remember how much palais and i that meant to us so when you said it the, the what makes me think of is you and i will often be at warwick's for different signings yours but we've been there for Robert Crace. We've been there for Matthew Quirk. We've been there for Don Winslow, a couple others. And the thing that I appreciate is when they see you, they're genuinely happy to see you. They are genuinely happy to see you. There's a different kind of energy that you get from your peers 
that you don't necessarily get from the audience. And I think that's a huge tribute to what you've accomplished for the 10 books. Tuesday night, we're going to be at Mysterious Galaxy. We're going to talk a lot about Odysseys and the latest book. And, and what I love, Matt, about these books is each one of them, I've been lucky enough to get the ARC, the advanced copy of. You've always been nice and brought me one. And I will talk to Matt during the process, and I'll say, hey, how's the book coming? <laughs> Dad, yeah, I'm not really a fan. And I start laughing every time. And I'm like, because the first time I bought into it, and I was like, oh, boy, what if this book sucks? Ooh. And then I read it, and it was great. And then I'd ask him the next time, hey, how's this book? I don't know. I said, ah, it's a good sign. And they've all been very, very fun. There's 10 books in the Cahill series. Yesterday's Echo to Odyssey's End. When you look at the 10, I'm going to ask you to do it, even though you're going to hate it. When you look at the 10, which one defines Cahill the best and which one def- which one defies, uh, defines Matt Coyle author the best? They could be the same book. They could be two different books. I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. Yeah, there is. I didn't quiz you when you lied about reading uh, yesterday's episode. Oh, I completely lied, but I loved um, it. Well. What defines Cahill? Which one? Without giving too much away for people that haven't necessarily read all of them yet. Maybe. Uh, well, you know, he, he's changed. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, he's changed over the years. In a, in a cool way, though. Yeah, I would say Odyssey's End defines him. I mean, this is going to sound stupid and, and obvious, but defines him now. And it's a huge change from where he came from. But I would say um, just for grit, maybe um, Blind Vigil yeah. for Cahill. Because he had to overcome a lot in that one. Yeah. He, over, he overcomes a lot in most books, but in that one, it was... And plus, he was helping his friend. Um, well, you know, he doesn't have that many friends. Right. Turk Muldoon and somebody that he'd been um, estranged from semi-estranged from for many years and um um i just you know i won't you know, blind vigil kind of tells you a little something maybe about what goes on in the book but yeah that one there's hugely challenging and honestly maybe that one for me too because it was so challenging to write spoiler rick has lost his eyesight and um it's possible in the book it's possible with what happened to his um i used to remember that i used to know the the, the me- mechanics and the medical um aspects of it but i can't remember but there's swelling in the brain it was possible for him to regain his eyesight so there's some sort of help but no he's blind and i it made for a great ending for the book behind before it great ending and then i've got to write this book i'm under contract um i just wrote a really good book before i think that i won uh Maybe I won an award for it. I can't remember. Yeah, I did. Um, a couple, actually. And um, <laughs> I've got a blind PI. I write in first person. i got a blind yeah. private eye that has to solve a, has to solve a case. And how am I going to make that interesting f- from first person? Yeah. It's, you're listening to him. He's the narrator for all these books. And I was so uncon- I was so unconvinced that I could do it that I brought in something I never had before. I was going to write a third person bad guy so I could, he was looking from without watching what's going on. I really loved the guy too. And because I just didn't think I could pull this off. And I, he wrote, I wrote him every, every three or four chapters, there would be a chapter, bad guy's point of view. And then as I continued, he was there less and less. And finally, after maybe about hundred pages, I said, well, fuck. Oh, sorry. That's You're fine. Yeah, you know, they say fuck all the time. Um, <laughs> I thought, you know, this is a Rick story. You got to do this. You have yeah. to do this in Rick's point of view. You can't take the cheat. You can't, in this book particularly, maybe you can have a third person in other books, but not in this one. Right. The challenge is Rick solving this without his eyesight, you making it interesting in his voice without him being able to see. And so once I was able to bulldoze through that, get that in my mind, push through it, um, I think it's one of my best books. And I think that, deter- I think, you know, it took me 10 years to get published. I think that shows my determination, be able to push through that. I think that kind of describes me, good or bad writer, um, good or bad at anything, I'm pretty determined. And so 
finally breaking through on that book that was a pretty that was a pretty good high and then having it being a pretty good book too um was quite rewarding so ironically i you know i wasn't ready for that question but thinking about it i would say yeah for for me and rick that really defines us uh i tell you the books are great and and the other part of it being is coil is a great dude so when you're supporting well, you know, because you go down and you meet people that can be good at what they do, and then you meet them and they're a complete dipshit. You're like, well, Jesus, what am I doing? And the other thing that I love- You that, happen to name them on radio out loud, or on, but I don't do well, that. <laughs> no, but the other thing that I have noticed as being through radio, and, and really I do give credit to iHeart. iHeart, for one thing, was nice enough to let me- bring in Steve Hamilton and bring in Don Winslow guys that I really liked. And, and I got a chance to visit with them and I really enjoyed it. And then through the years through, through Matt meeting Robert Crace and, and quirk and, and a few of these other guys that we've had the chance to visit with and you really enjoy them. John Sanford was a different guy that you meet these guys and man, then you read it and it just, I don't know. It makes it so much more enjoyable, but he's a San Diego guy. The books take place here it's you're San Diego. You're going to love them. And, and I would just tell you, I get Matt's point. We'd love you all to come out Tuesday night. We're going to be at mysterious galaxy seven o'clock. The one thing we didn't do tonight for a particular reason is tell you much about Odyssey's end. We want you to come out Tuesday night. It's going to be a focus on that book. What could potentially be some of the fallout from that book potentially what could be next for not only Rick Cahill, but also for Coyle, will do all those kind of things. I just, I say congratulations. You're one of the most humble guys I know. There's a reason why the Union Tribune, you can play, you can downplay this all you want. I think it's incredibly cool that two times within a four week window. You didn't see it this morning, did you? No. Are you back again? Yeah. Is it a third time in five weeks? Um, one of the, they, there's a guy at Warwick's who I didn't even know this every year. He does one uh, review for the UT. And he did, did it John? Uh, John. Yeah. Yeah. Who usually introduced me. Great dude. Uh, yeah. And he ended up putting a really nice review in for Odyssey's end. So after, so it was in there this morning, in the UT this morning. So I've, I've had a really good run with the UT of the last, uh, probably three times in the last four weeks. Okay, look, Jay Posner is a buddy of mine. And we we know the arts and entertainment section, there is so many different things that are submitted to those guys. And I'm sure they get a stack of books from a thousand authors, both local and national, that any of those kind of things can be used to promote the book again, locally and nationally. So when the Union Tribune says, yeah, not only is this guy local, but he's really, really good. I think that's a huge compliment, Matt, to you. You've always kind of downplayed your success, but you know it. I, I come on here and we don't really pull a lot of punches here. So I, I think the people that we've turned on to the books have come away incredibly satisfied. And the other thing that we say is, look, man, everybody's fighting a battle. There's something going on. I used to only read sports biographies, and now you've ruined that for me. I can't even go back and read because every sports biography does the same thing. They start with chapter one is about that moment of that particular game. And then we go back to when they were 11, growing up in Tulsa. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> Nobody cares. Just tell us what we need to know. The thing I will tell you with the Cahill books, from page one to the end, there's never a moment when you don't feel like, whoa. There's never a moment where you feel like, come on. And there's never a moment when you're like, I'm going to put this book down and I'll get to it in a month. You put that book down and you're going to say, when can I find more time? And that's credit to the great author who's our friend, Matt Coyle. We're going to end on a really easy note. Where'd Rick Cahill's name come from? Uh, that's a good question. First of all, I just want to mention that. Yeah, when well, we're going to be at Warwick's. Or Mysterious Galaxy. Mysterious Galaxy. Um, Jesus. Sorry, sorry, MG. Um, we're going to be there, but I'm going to, if you buy the book, you'll get a, um, raffle ticket. I'm going to give away some shit. So okay. be a little raffle, give away some stuff. Um, 
I wanted it to be um, as an homage to Raymond Chandler. Chandler was a big influence on me. RC, Raymond, Rick Cahill. And I also wanted to have a hard C. I wanted that Rick and I liked Cahill. Is that Cahill I wanted, a street somewhere in San Diego? Um, I don't think so. It's it's an Irish. I want it to be kind of an Irish descent too because for obvious uh, reasons, um, I'm Irish descent. And um, speaking of, I'll tell you, speaking of a street in San Diego, I don't, I don't know whether it is or not. But when, I, when speaking of the Union Tribute again, they, they did a little thing on me. My first book came out, Yesterday's Echo. Yeah. And I got an email on my website. Guy said, hey, I saw the write-up in the Union. Congrats. You know, I'm a mystery writer too. I'm like, cool. And he said, at the bottom, he goes, I just want to know where you got the name. And, I, and uh, Rick Cahill. And so when I saw, at, he signed it, his name was Rick Cahill. <laughs> Oh no way! <laughs> that that uh, there's a great character. He was a, not happy. Oh well, sorry. He'll live. Uh, the books are great, and Rick Cahill's pretty likable in these books. What's that guy done? Probably can't even bench two twenty. <laughs> I could in the day. <laughs> uh, my, we'll leave with this. My favorite author character story came from John Sanford, who I got a huge kick out of, and one of his characters. Uh, in the Lucas Davenport book is a, a assistant cop who's pretty funny and his name's Dell Capslock. And he said he couldn't figure out the name and he looked down at the keyboard and there's <laughs> Dell and Capslock above each other. And he was candid and said, that's how I got it, which should have been so easy for any of us that read or use it. Uh, typewriter every day I didn't get it. and he was so candid. He said it. Hey, Matt, congratulations. The brand new book is Odyssey's end. Uh, you can find these. We are very big supporters of local bookstores. We hope you'll come out to Mysterious Galaxy on Tuesday night. I was just yesterday in Coronado at Bay Books. If you're on the island, you can find signed copies of the Sorry. books there. Warwick's in La Jolla has been a huge supporter of Matt's from day one. Any of these stores are great. But again, come out Tuesday night. We're going to talk about Odyssey's End. There'll be a raffle going on, and it's always a whole lot of fun, buddy. Congratulations! Hey, it's, thanks for having me. It's, yeah, it's no. uh, it's it's. You asked about those moments doing the show in the garage for me is one of those moments now. Well, uh, it's been very very fun for me to watch this go from from book one to where we are now, book ten, and it's no shock at all that the books are as successful as they are. There, because you know me, I called Matt and. And I give him a 20-minute tirade about, why is this goddamn guy shrugging in every book? I get it. Shrug, shrug. And it's always authors that many of you would know. I won't mention them here. And uh, it makes me crazy. And then I call him and I say, this is why I need a Cahill book. Because there's never, I'm telling you candidly, there's never been a time where I look at that and go, it's uh, lazy writing. It's always good. It's always fun. Uh, Tuesday night, we'll be at Mysterious Galaxy, 7 o'clock. Please come on down, support Matt. Uh, we'll have a whole lot of fun. Uh, Matt, continued success, brother. We'll do it again. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. You got it.
Backspin door, I laughed so hard I 